Hello listeners, before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to Reimagine Work, a podcast dedicated to questioning our modern conception of work and its role in our lives. I'm your host, Paul Millard, and I have conversations with philosophers, authors, creators, freelancers, and vagabonds who are trying to make sense of this question in their own lives. Join me while I try to navigate the emerging future of work. If you'd like to read more of my writing, explore this podcast, or find ways to work with me, you can go to think-boundless.com. Today, I am talking with Wesley Kang and Tanya Zhang, the co-founders of Nimble Made, an e-commerce clothing site that makes actually slim dress shirts. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Hey, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thanks, Paul. I want to dig into your stories. I also want to dig into the fact that you guys are also in a relationship as you're running a business. Uh, But first, (laughs) just wanted to start with digging into what your conceptions of success growing up were in terms of thinking about going into the business world, getting jobs, things like that. What were some of your earliest reflections on what what that meant? Either of you feel free to jump in. This is my first uh, two-person podcast, so we'll, we'll learn as we go, but uh, <laughs> excited to see how this goes. Between Tanya and myself, I think Tanya has the more traditional, stricter parents. So I think she's faced more obstacles around what it means to be successful, especially as Asian Americans, like growing up uh, here, you know, she, she was on the West Coast, I was on the East Coast, but, you know, cultures are really similar. Um, for myself, uh, I think that because my parents came to the U.S. really, really late, they had no real idea of what success meant or like what the American dream was. They They just knew that you know, from a very high level that coming here would be good. And and so when they came, they didn't really define for me, like, you know, where I needed to go and like what what job I needed to land to um, to find to to find success for myself. Um, but I ended up like kind of learning that as I went through the system, because I think in the US, you know, education is like such a primary focus. And I think who you're surrounded by, like that really influences like what you think success is and then you know my my parents really their influence was 
very broad and they just basically just wanted me to like find a high paying job that was like steady and I was able to like support myself and then like make more money than they were able to make essentially. Uh, And I think that's, you'll hear that from a lot of immigrant parents because like, you know, they basically sacrifice everything so that we have this one opportunity. Um, So what success meant for me always was just, you know, study something that was really useful in college, graduate, find a really good job that pays, you know, well, and not have to like bother my parents for financial troubles or anything. And then hopefully like pay them back and kind of reward them later on in life, you know, by either like buying them something really nice or have enough money to just like retire and spend time with them. And, and that was like kind of my original definition of success for myself. And it was very straightforward. Yeah, I think Wesley's right. We do have kind of different um, upbringings in that our parents kind of uh, had different I guess, um, standards, um, that they wanted us to like uphold to, but again, very much with the similar themes of like being very hardworking, um, and getting a good job someplace that paid a lot and had a good reputation. For me, my parents immigrated to the States in their mid to late twenties. So they were definitely coming here with the intention of, Hey, we're going to start a family in a better place where they have like an American dream they can, they can fulfill. And so I have very, very clear, uh, very clear kind of moments in my mind from my childhood. I remember coming home with having gotten like a hundred on a test or like a piece of homework, showing it to my dad. And then of course, being very like, oh my God, dad, like, look what I got, like 100%, isn't that great? And remember him looking at it and kind of like laughing it off, saying like, oh, but that's what you're supposed to get. Uh, (laughs) So it was was very tough, uh, very, very tough growing up because I felt like everything I did, I kind of had to build kind of a business case around. If I wanted the new Game Boy SP, I had to kind of build up the rationale as to why my parents should buy it for me. Um, And so it was tough, but it's all all comes comes from a place of love only because they've, uh, my parents have both struggled so hard and like brought us to the States um, or like came over to the States to have us here um, only just to make our lives much easier. Well, I think one thing that jumps out too is you touched on it, Wesley, that expectation of taking care of your parents. It's often not a suggestion, right? It's often quite explicit uh, yeah. <laughs> for people. Has that um, has that come up as you've entered into this period of more uncertainty? Tanya's parents came when she was like, when right. they were like tw- in their 20s. My parents came when they were like mid 40s. Right. And so they don't like, they don't like speak, you know, really a word of English. And and that's kind of influenced a lot in like who I am today because I've had to learn like, you know, how to deal with a lot of different types of scenarios where like a young person would not have to like mm-hmm. help them call like the utilities company to like figure out why like the electricity bill was like higher that month because like they can't speak English and I had like gone through school and I knew English. And so like as like a, you know, 12 year old, like I had to do that. And so um, for me, I, I mentioned that because my parents are less traditional in that sense because they don't know like 
what it means to like come here and pursue the American dream. So they're they're very casual in that sense. So they actually like, you know, only joke about like, oh, you know, when I retire, you're gonna have to like give me X amount of money every month. <laughs> um, but haven't really like always meant that because they're they're not that traditional. Whereas I think in the in the very traditional mindset, it is like absolutely expected mm-hmm. and critical for you to be like giving back to your family and then being like putting that you know before anything else in your life and I think Tanya can maybe chime in on what her parents thoughts are on on the giving back yeah I mean I think more or less it's around kind of the same the whole um, expectation with kind of like a Chinese American family is that you provide for like the generation um, after you just give and you give and you give and you give. And with that means that you pay respect to the generation before you. And so, yeah, it is very much about expecting that you take your parents in when they're like older and that you can take care of them, give them grandchildren, <laughs> et cetera. I'd love to touch on some of the experiences in the corporate world. You both worked in New York for a few years. Uh, Wesley, mm-hmm. you were more in the banking and finance. Tanya, you worked in advertising, fintech, and consulting. Mm-hmm. But perhaps we start with Wesley. Um, mm-hmm. You you wrote a reflection on my blog, which I'll I'll link up in. I'd say you were a little bit scorched earth in terms of some of your reflections on the corporate yeah. world. Uh, but you said something, we weren't particularly smart or had any particularly unique skills, uh, despite yeah. what people may think about banking and finance. What's that about? I thought people in banking and finance are highly skilled. <laughs> I, I think you know the answer to this one, but um, you know, when, when you go through, like the education system in America is like one that one that is very systematic. And I think that you know, we're expected to do certain things. And when we do them, we expect to receive certain things in return. So I think in, in many ways, the, the system is very like organized. And so as a result of that, I think everybody has this idea of like, you know, if you go to a good school and you network well, if you go to an Ivy League and you find the right recruiters, then you're going to get into the high finance world doing investment banking or like equity research or, you know, all these like buzzwords in finance. And that means that you're of a certain caliber in, in intelligence and you studied certain things in school. And that might be true to some extent, but when I got to the real world and I got my first job, of course I was like super excited and I was like really proud of myself because I, I thought all of those things, right? I thought like, I was super smart. I thought that like, you know, I played the game right and networked with the right people. And I thought I had finally like, you know, got there. Like I didn't need to do anything more other than be successful in my job and I'll continue to reap the rewards, so to speak. And and after I worked there for like two or three years, I realized that like that wasn't really true. And it's because the the very fact that we have this like construct, I think, is is really the the negative thing about it, which is we're kind of siloed in this like set of expectations and we're siloed in this like set of thinking so that, yeah, like people in finance are smart, but like they're only smart at like using Excel and they're only smart at like doing like five things, the same five things that we do every day for like 40 years. Right. And 
to a, to a truly smart person who is intellectually really curious and wants to learn about everything and wants to be like involved in everything and is curious like that's not smart at all because you're really only good at like one thing and so you know after working there for like two three years I realized that like you know you're constantly surrounded by people who think they're really smart and we're all really good at one thing and so we're in this like fantasy world where we tell each other like we're the best and and then I think it's it's dangerous because you don't like really realize like what else is out there in the world and what else there is to know other than like financial modeling and like I don't even like saying those words anymore but um, so so that's kind of what I mean like I think there's a there's a cycle of feeding into this idea that you know you are successful if you are in finance because you know like these things yeah, and perhaps Tanya, you could reflect on you actually moved it seems like you moved around a little bit more. Was that driven by a similar kind of urge for learning? I and I th- think like this is something I face is I worked in what was seen as like, oh, you've made it, right? Now you should just like lock down and try to optimize for earnings. And I kept leaving and like sometimes I'd take pay cuts and people would be like, You're making a mistake. But then, like, uh-huh. looking back, people would be like, oh, wow, you were so successful. And it was like, this is not what everyone told me in the moment. Because I was trying to prioritize learning. Um, yeah. And eventually, I ran out of moves and had to do my own thing. But um, <laughs> wonder, wondering how that uh, resonates with you and um, what eventually led you to decide to take the leap. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the exact same kind of feeling. I was, uh, I started my career in advertising as an art director. So I was working on big kind of uh, global campaigns, which was really, really fun. There's a whole kind of glamour to advertising as a whole, um, especially as a creative. And so I had some really, really great experiences, some really bad experiences there as well. Um, but always thinking about, okay, so this is advertising what's next like what else is there to learn and to do in this world right and so you're right I did switch from then I switched to like a fintech startup um, and then eventually into consulting Um, I think it was always just kind of hoping that I would be able to find a company or a brand or a place that would really continue to like challenge me on a daily basis um, where I would wake up feel really eager um, to be working on something. Um, but it's tough because as Wesley says, these corporations and even higher education as a whole is very systematic um, in a way that kind of applauds people for doing the average things um, since they're compared to the rest of their peers on kind of an averaging system. Um, and so it's 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 really tough, especially when you feel especially when you know you have the skill set and the potential and the capacity to be some something much bigger and greater it's like okay where where can I go that would really really just make me feel uncomfortable every day when I wake up and uh turns out starting a business is that (laughs) (laughs) yeah how did you get to that realization uh was it just moving around a few times and I think one thing I realized and just full-time jobs is that people are typically hiring you for a narrow set of skills, right? 
And there's a lot of talk about like we prioritize learning and we want you to like really do a lot of different things. But in reality, it's not what the role of like a full time job, like your main role is just to kind of do what you're expected to do. Keep doing mm -hmm. it really well. And kind of, as as Wesley says, uh, sit around uh, the longest and <laughs> hope to get promoted, right? Um, so uh, w how did you come to that realization in terms of thinking about entrepreneurship? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think I had it in me pretty early on. Even in college, I was kind of like freelancing on the side, just trying to like do some side hustles here and there. Um, selling t-shirts that I like designed and like silk screen on the side, you know, for fun. And so I think there, I always had that entrepreneur spirit and I never really thought that that was a valid career path for me. Um, so naturally after college, it went straight to kind of a, uh, fortune 500 companies to start my first job. Um, and then from there, just, I think wanting to try something very, very different and try different industries um, because I was kind of really hoping that I just hadn't found like the right job or I hadn't found the right company or the right industry that um, was going to kind of fulfill my, my ambitions for me. Um, and so I switched like from agency to a startup that was just financial tech and then switched to consulting, which is a whole different kind of business model. And it, I mean, it's all really, really great experiences, but I think in the end, you're always just like yearning for a little bit more and just itching to kind of create something bigger. Yeah. What was the first moment between you two where you sat down and had that first kind of small thought of, hey, let's start a business together. Or it might not even have been that fully formed. But uh, do you guys remember the first moment? Might be a different memory for each of you. Mm. <laughs> um, so actually, like, when we we're talking about the Nimble Made company, I think that Parts of that actually existed prior to the actual formation of NimbleMade, and it existed in Tanya's design business where, mm -hmm. you know, as she mentioned, she did a lot of freelance work, you know, in high school, even high school and college. Mm -hmm. And that business continued to to uh, grow until we met. And I think in 2017, like March of 2017, we had said like, hey, like, you know, you've been doing this for a while, but you've never really had the opportunity to like try and actually grow it and make it your thing. And let's try that. And I think we, we tried that for like half a year and we realized that like this, the services industry is like the graphic design services industry was like pretty competitive and we weren't particularly like good or, or, didn't particularly feel compelled to be like aggressive salesmen to try and like pitch clients and because ultimately like you have to do that in a really really competitive market mm -hmm. and so we you know we were finding ourselves in this kind of like unstable um lull where we weren't really sure if we were going to get a client on one month and then the next month we would get like three clients and it was hard to like project our success and and maintain it because you know I think in graphic design, sometimes it can be very like one off. And so right. our idea was like, let's create a product mm -hmm. and see if we can like establish some kind of consistency and sell this product and grow it. 
and then we'll be able to like project it. We'll be able to like work on it. And that product idea turned into um, what Nimble made is today. And that really came from like, you know, as you know, my personal struggle of like not being able to find a dresser while working in finance, which is kind mm-hmm. of funny because like basically working in finance inspired me to like create this thing. <laughs> and I never would have created this thing if I didn't work in finance. Yeah. So, so, you know, for us, the, the inflection points are really, it, it's really like March 2017. And then like April of 2018 was when we like turned that product idea into Nimble May and started working on it. And then August of 2018 was when we formally launched the brand Nimble Made. And then November of 2018 was when we both like left our jobs. And, you know, they aren't defined by those particular moments. There's a lot of buildup in between. Mm-hmm. Um, I think really between August and November was the biggest buildup. I think we would really just like go to our jobs every day, come home and just like talk about it. Mm-hmm. And to the point where like, we were just like, wait, we're like talking about this every single day, talking about like, yeah. you know, I just can't wait for that one day where like we can just like work on this. And then I think at some point we were just like, wait, like, why aren't we doing <laughs> that? Like, we're yeah. not, we weren't at a place in our lives where like if we didn't have our full-time jobs, we would be like homeless. Yeah. And so like there really is no good reason to not try it at least, right? I mean, arguments can be made that like we're going to fail, we're not going to make any money, but like. I think what pushed us over the line was just like money can always be made. Jobs can always be had, Mm -hmm. but like we are never going to be the same young age that we are and be able to take on this risk at the same place that we are. Like we'll never get time back. And so we kind of just like made the leap. That's amazing. How did you pick the date uh, that was the, the quit date? Yeah. There was not really like a set date. I think like I was like working at my startup job. So after after I worked in banking, I left to join like a startup. Actually, pretty similar to Tanya. Tanya, I joined a startup doing finance there, and they were an e-commerce company selling used cars. And there, I had like you know like a really hardcore manager. He's like a great guy. He's like a great mentor, and he like really challenged me in like many ways that I didn't get challenged in the finance world. And I think because of that, I, was, I realized that like this is like really fucking hard what I was doing in the startup, but like I wasn't passionate about it. So I didn't have the motivation to like push past these obstacles. And so I had like basically just like started talking to my manager about it, like over the course of a month or two and eventually just led up to this, this like breaking point where I was like, look, I like I'm doing the company, you know, at at the service by like Mm -hmm. staying here. Like, of course I can just like lie to you and like, not do shit or like be an average person but we're like who knows how long however long I want actually but like I'm not the type of person to like not be a hundred percent so I basically just told him like look I'm I'm gonna leave like if that means like giving my two weeks notice now or like not coming back tomorrow I'm doing it and so you know that happened really like in October so I actually left before Tanya yeah and after I left, I think Tanya felt more inspired to to do it as well. And she she had her her own struggles because she had to convince like her parents and stuff. And and I'll let her, you know, talk more about that. Yeah, I think that's funny that that's um, how you remembered it. <laughs> I think uh, let me see. I I, I vaguely remember I had 
started to think about leaving my full-time job. And at that time, you had just kind of started at your startup. Um, and so I was like, it definitely took me longer to kind of to get around to do it, uh, just naturally being a very like risk-averse person uh, because of my cult my cultural upbringing, but I, I had been thinking about it for a good, like, half year, um, like, literally every single day coming home thinking, like, why am I still at this job when I can be doing something on my own, um, and so it took me a little bit longer to kind of break down. I think Wesley uh, was a little bit more kind of spontaneous and quick to execute towards the end of it, um, where he actually, as he was saying, uh, ended up leaving before uh, I did just about like a few, just, just, just for like a few weeks earlier, I yeah. think. Um, but yeah, I think it was funny because, uh, we were thinking, okay, I'm at least freelancing on the side. I can kind of like leave my job, try this startup. If it takes off, then Wesley can kind of like hop on board. Um, and then just by the nature of like the events at his work, um, Wesley left before I did. And I was just like, okay, me too. Did you guys ever have a conversation about the different skills you guys had? Because it, it seems like you have a unique combination and collection of skills. I think we didn't kind of sit down and have that conversation. We just naturally came to realize it when we were working on my freelance uh, business that we were trying to scale into kind of a design or like a creative agency. Um, obviously, I was doing a lot of the kind of like design work using the Adobe suite, whereas Wesley obviously had a lot of skills in data and like finance and like the books and everything like that. So that I mean, was like pretty natural to us just from the get go working on the uh, when we were trying to scale our uh, design agency. But when we started working on, on Nimble, we actually realized like, yeah, we have complementary skill sets. But oh, my God, there's a lot of stuff we both don't know. Um, that was really scary because <laughs> I think with the with the creative agency that we were working on, it was kind of just like, OK, we design, we send it out, we collect payment done repeat um whereas with nimble made e-commerce business oh my god the whole there's so many things like seo sem digital ads um none of which we really had dabbled in in our corporate careers at all did you guys sit down and have a, another conversation around hey we're also in a relationship and we're starting a business together Wesley's nodding. Yeah, yeah. I, no, I think we that, that conversation we definitely had. And I think when we were doing the freelance business, it was like, it was like less serious, I think, because mm -hmm. I basically just told her like, look, if it like, if, if it doesn't work out, like, of course, you can like have your freelance business. Like, I would never like take that away from you. Mm -hmm. And so I think going into it, like Tanya had that safety net to feel like, you know, I even if we don't work out, like I wasn't there to like take that away from her. And we were both working towards like the success of this thing. Um, but as we got more and more involved with like, you know, nimble made and stuff, I think like we've encountered a lot of obstacles we did not foresee. And, you know, I, I wish we had like an explicit conversation to talk about like, what do we do when this happens? You know, what do we do when this happens as a couple? Um, Cause what we discovered was that like, you know, I think that the nature of running like a business where it's a startup and you're the only two people involved is is like an environment where there's a huge, huge lack of resources, right? Like anything that you don't know, you can't just like 
ask the VP or like ask your coworker to like find mm-hmm. out. And so you got to like find out on your own. And 99% of the time, it's not just like ask one question, get the answer. It's like ask one question and get like 15 more questions. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it, it causes a lot of tension and a lot of frustration and like, you know, every time, like, I feel like I go down a hole, I find like 10 more holes. And so emotionally, it's like put us in like a very uh, kind of short, uh, we're like on, we're always like short tempered, I feel like. Um, and so that has definitely like trickled into our relationship at times. And that's, that's why I mentioned, like, I wish we had these conversations so that we would know, like, oh, you know, whenever you're feeling frustrated, just remember that, like, we also love each other mm-hmm. and that we're more than this working relationship. But recently, I think we've like really found the rhythm a lot more. Yeah. And I think we've been good at like reminding ourselves that, you know, this is more than just the success of an implement. It's also like, you know, other parts of our lives are, are melded together in this. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is it's hard to have a conversation around it. if You don't really know what to expect or what to yeah. really talk about. Um, a lot of the times it's like we are working, something comes up and we're like, oh, okay, this is kind of interesting for both the business and us as, you know, like a couple. And then that's kind of the moment that we'll like talk about it. Right. Like, for example, we're always working. Um, when do we stop working and just talk as if we aren't business partners? Um, so we kind of like chat about that. And then we're like, okay, let's try to, you know, like after 7 p.m., we'll like stop talking about work and start like watching TV or talking about, you know, like pop culture and stuff like that. But then really we just end up like finding ourselves like 8 p.m., 9 p.m. <laughs> at like a late, like late dinner out and just like having the conversation just slide back into work. Um, but also in a good way because it's, it's it's that we then realize that we actually both like talking about work too. So why does it need to have? Why does it need to have, be that clearly defi- defined and like so black and white? Um, but we're learning a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, it sounds like you're both excited about it, right? So <laughs> it's I think we often get tied to this idea that we should kind of separate work and life. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes that's almost why people feel a bit alienated is because mm-hmm. they have this separate work life and it's not really who they are. Um, mm-hmm. And I think entrepreneurship, I mean, you've written about this, uh, both of you, the uncertainty of it is uh, it can be paralyzing, but it can also on the flip side bring you alive, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's pairing that uncertainty with the responsibility and like the ownership that um, – I know for me, like creating my own things, it it just gives me so much energy because I, there's no one I can complain. There's no boss I can complain about, or there's no like excuse other than like I just didn't have the courage to do it. And mm-hmm. I've kind of seen that as a feature, like the uncertainty and vulnerability of it. How have you guys uh, felt about that? And definitely in respect to comparing it to full time work. Like I said earlier, I'm more of the kind of risk adverse person um i'm like always very planned out and like organized like my google calendar is like planned to the minute um because i'm crazy like that it is 
very, very uncertain at all times, every single day. But like you said, Paul, that's just what makes it as exciting as it is. Um, it's really awesome to be able to see uh, the results of like our labor kind of like become fruitful. Um, we've just like recently seen some success in like some of our ads that we've been like pushing out for like months uh, after spending hundreds of dollars. We get like one sale. We're like, oh my God. <laughs> this is amazing. Like just like a wave of like relief. Um, and so, yeah, it is very, very scary. I, I personally haven't really coped with it or found a way to kind of like reassure myself that it's going to be okay. Uh, so kind of just living on the edge every day. (laughs) Um, but it's great to have a co-founder who's also my lover (laughs) to be able to talk to and like talk things through with yeah I, th- I think in many ways our relationship ha- has actually made our business relationship stronger as well um because like there's just there's just more more to it than, than strictly business and i think when times are tough like we can support each other and reassure each other in a personal way that like business partners can't really do mm. and and I, w- I won't say that this would work for everyone because I, I definitely don't think it would no. i think tanya and i are like really lucky to have this dynamic work between us i can see how this could like destroy friendships destroy relationships for sure um so uh, and for me dealing with the vulnerability and, and the uncertainty i i usually just like trap myself in like an extreme logic kind of proposition and i just basically tell myself like what is the worst thing that could like possibly happen and to me the answer is always like i spend a bunch of money the company goes nowhere. We make zero dollars, and I have to like find a job again. I have to cash out my four hundred one k, and I have to make money again, like everyone else. And to me, like if I have to do that after having learned all the things that I've learned, uh, met all the people that I've met, and gained all the skills that I've I've gained from from failing, then that's not really failure at all. And so you know, there really is no option for me. Mm-hmm. People often have this fear of, I can't leave my job, I'll never be able to come back again, right? Yeah. And they're only looking at the negative side of it. People, mm-hmm. when they actually take the leap and they learn all these new things and they're experimenting, the challenge is often not, how do I get a job again? It shifts to oh, crap, I've learned all these things. There's now 50 other things I'm actually interested in anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think people have a hard time anticipating some of the positive shifts that happen from doing something like this, especially early, um, earlier in, in your 20s like you guys are. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think it's tough for people because there's not enough entrepreneurs doing it. So they don't have people in their immediate circles where they see that, oh, wow, like, he or she is doing it that means I can do it too and that's something that was especially hard for Wesley and me um, as Asian American founders it's like there's not too many of us kind of breaking away from this like conventional career path just due to our kind of cultural upbringing right we don't see a lot of Asian or Asian American or even AAPI or 
people of color entrepreneurs who are kind of like paving the way and showing us that there are like that you can do it right and so it's it is it it is very very hard to and I think that like Wesley and I like pride ourselves in uh being Asian American founders and being very like prideful and saying that we are that we are trying to do this and so everyone that we talk to in our communities we're like hey like we're doing this like you can do it too you don't have to be stuck at a office job at at a nine to five because you think that's the only way to do it how have you found staying in new york i worked in new york for two years and i was working full-time there but the when i left um i was still in new york i was working on my own as a freelancer basically not really landing any projects and just sticking around mm-hmm. in New York. I did the calculation that I was just basically lighting money on fire and I should mm-hmm. move somewhere else immediately. But yep. um, one thing I found was that all my social circle in life was oriented around a Monday to Friday, everyone works nine to seven type life, right? And I kind of wanted to do stuff during the day and people would be like, all right, come to happy hour. And it's like, that's <laughs> not really what I wanted to do anymore. How... How have you found um, the social dynamic of all these things? Yeah, I think the most direct answer to that and the biggest change we've had recently is that we started like fostering a dog yes. and like thinking about adopting, which is like funny because you mentioned that like things you want to do in the daytime that like you couldn't really do in the past. And so, you know, we've we've had like basically these experiences like taking in these beautiful animals and like really like seeing how their personality change and like I think it's helped us like shape our perspectives and you know seeing something like that makes us just remember that there's so much more to life than like a nine to seven mm-hmm. and like that's what these people are missing out on like when they have a nine to seven right um yeah so you know I think staying in New York has been beneficial for us personally mm-hmm. um and I think you know, in the, in the interest of full transparency, I think we're fortunate that, like, Tanya and I have a place that, you know, Tanya, like, Tanya owns her place. So mm-hmm. it's not like we're we're critically burdened by, like, rent and stuff. And now that we're living together, we can kind of, like, cushion cushion that financial burden in, in a very large sense. So that's, that's kind of, like, the majority of our expenditures. Um, so from a financial perspective, like, we're pretty okay. And you know, because we've had years in, in the corporate job, like we do have like a decent amount of savings that we could kind of use to live in for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. Um, so financially, like that's been fine in terms of staying in New York. But I think the other aspect, which is the positive, is that I, I on a personal level, I don't like how like ridiculously crazy New York is like all the time and how like monotoned the working force is. But I think professionally, like, it's good that we're surrounded by this fast-paced environment and that we've been able to really, like, you know, meet so many people so quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you talk about the density of New York City. Like, I think that's been a really huge asset for us because if we go to one event in New York City, we can talk to, like, 200 people. (laughs) Whereas if we go to, like, one event in, like, San Diego, there'll be, like, 30 people. And so, you know, efficiency-wise... And if we bring that to numbers, like, let's say, like, every, you know, 100 people you meet, there's, like, one person that's, like, really important for the growth of your business, whether it's, like, a client or, like, a partner. 
then meeting 200 people is like a hell of a lot faster than like meeting 30 people at a time. And so for us, like, it's kind of like efficient for us to be here. Um, and, and so that's, that's kind of my response to it. Yeah, I think definitely to Wesley's point, like we can set up a photo shoot for one of our new shirts in maybe like a few days, if not like a few hours, right? We'll find the model, we'll find the photographer. Everyone's hungry. Everyone's like hustling. They're like, yes, I'll do it. Let's like do it tomorrow. Or like, so yeah, awesome. So that's really been like helping us expedite our startup. Um, a Many people who come across our website or come across us as we're like sharing our brand, they think that we've been around a lot, a lot longer than we have. Um, again, it's only been about six months since we left, uh, but everyone's like, wait, you haven't been doing it for like a few years? I'm like, no, but thank you. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it's <great>. been, <laughs> yeah, I know. Thank God. Um, it's, yeah, it's been really, really great. I mean, I think we both kind of also talked about we'll be in New York for a little while longer. I think it depends on how quickly we can get the business to scale um, to a to a place where we can basically just work remotely anywhere. Um, Ideally go abroad, maybe meet you in Taiwan. That'd be awesome. Basically as soon as we hit critical mass, we're getting the fuck out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk about that. How did, did you guys ever sit down and say, okay, here's the life we're building around or building towards. I think one of the unique features of working on your own is that it often flips the frame from designing your life around a job to, oh, crap, we can do whatever we want. And then you you have the extra burden of having to design a life um, that's not centered around a job. But have you guys uh, talked about that or gone through any exercises to figure out what that looks like? That's both the most exciting and the hardest part because like we've talked about it, but that doesn't necessarily mean it'll happen. Like, we're like, here's what we want to do. Like, we want to get, you know, nimble made to this level. And it doesn't have to be like a multi-million dollar business. Like, like, let's say we just scale it to, you know, a business that brings in 100, 200,000, you know, in, in revenues, like a year. That would be like enough for us to just like go abroad and basically like live indefinitely, right? So, you know, we can talk about scenarios like that. And that's not like super far-fetched for like an e-commerce business. There's plenty mm-hmm. of people like doing like stupid dropshipping that does like that much in revenues. So um, we've certainly like talked about it, mm-hmm. but it's one thing to talk about it and then like actually execute the things needed to like get us there, right? Like I think every day we have some idea of like, okay, here's what we need to do today to be one step closer to what we said we were going to be, you know, a year from now. And the problem is, like, we only think that, and it's really hard to know for sure, like, whether, you know, it actually moves the needle. Because uh, a lot of times, like, there is no direct feedback system when you, like, start a, mm-hmm. start a business. Like, it's like, when you're at a corporate job, like, even if you do something that was, like, wasted work, at least you're moving, like, the needle of time, which is, like, if you spend enough time in corporate, like, you're going to get promoted. <laughs> you're going to get a pay raise, right? So mm-hmm. it's, like, just by putting your ass in the seat, like, you're getting somewhere. But like in entrepreneurship, like there is, there isn't, that needle does not exist. It's like, if we just sit in front of a computer and like do things that we think are working and don't move the needle, then like it really goes nowhere because it's all on you and everyone you work with. Uh, And for us, that's just Tanya. (laughs) And for Tanya, that's just me. So, you know, that's, that's both the exciting and the challenging part. And we have talked about it, but it's, it's hard to align it completely on like a steady track 
to see if we're ever going to get there. And the other thing is like, we can like, we can go 364 days, like thinking that we're never going to get there. But then on the 365th day, like everything that needs to happen, like happens that can also like totally, totally happen on on any day. So (laughs) that's the thing. What have you seen as some of the challenges of, or even some of the interesting things and opportunities that have emerged in terms of how you can actually start and run an e-commerce business today? I think people don't realize how easy some of these things are to actually pull together. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the tools, the the e-commerce sites, the infrastructure and the back end has gotten so much easier that uh, I don't think people realize that this is possible and i think for me seeing all this i've experimented with a lot of different things i've come up with like so many ideas just because i'm like oh my god i didn't even realize what was possible um two things like one i'm like oh my god like the corporate world was using so little of this and then like Mm -hmm. two it's like oh there's so many things i could do um what have it been your reactions to uh what you've seen in terms of the tools and um technology out there yeah i mean that's 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 true i would agree with that there are a lot much kind of easier like user friendly interfaces and software out there where people can easily click and drag and just create a website right um i think while the tools exist um definitely just need a lot of perseverance uh to make sure that you commit yourself to it uh because as wesley and i have made our own website through like shopify um while it's easy to create the page creating the whole site is uh it definitely takes some effort right so it's not to discount the fact that things take time and so having that patience is really really great but we've yeah i mean we've used shopify as our e-commerce uh kind of website host uh we use mailchimp for like email marketing i mean instagram obviously is going crazy and there's so many things you can do now with like influencers like spreading the word of your brand and like what you do and also the easiest i think is just like the word of mouth and like the amount of um, the amount of kind of support that you can get from just your immediate community has been probably the most overwhelming for us, um, especially since Wesley and I, uh, with building Nimble Made, we're completely bootstrapped, we're self-funded, and so everything that goes into into the business is coming out of our personal savings, right? And so naturally, we're very much kind of very aware of where we're spending the money and so being able to kind of reach out to our community and be like hey is anyone like willing to help us out with this like give us your feedback on this like dress shirt that we kind of just like hacked together um at the very beginning like that's like you'd be surprised how many people are willing to help you out and that's kind of been really helpful for us yeah and i think one thing i'll add to that is to like aspiring entrepreneurs and current entrepreneurs i think like Nowadays, because there's so much information and so many tools that make like what used to be difficult really easy, it actually creates this facade that like, you know, all entrepreneurs are successful and all people who like try to do something like will learn it and everything is like very easy because there's like these tools out there to help you do it. But like, I think it's actually made the landscape like more difficult, right? Because like, because it's so easy to create an e-commerce store, everybody's doing e-commerce. So it's like, you now the difficult part is now not to launch an e-commerce store but like 
launching an e-commerce store that's like differentiated enough so that you can convince people to like buy what you're selling. And that's a hell of a lot harder than, like you said, like signing up for Shopify and like clicking and dragging a few things. And like, cause, cause you're right. Like anyone can literally do that nowadays. Um, but because of that, everyone is doing that. And so it's harder to stand out. And, and for me, the challenge has been like figuring out what those things are that we have to do to convince people that we are different and that when you buy from us, you know, it's, it's something else and it's not any other store. And because we've not really done anything like this, like we don't know what those things are. And so the only mm-hmm. way we know is by finding out the things that aren't those things and trying something else until like the needle moves, so to speak. Yeah. So maybe we can close with a little bit about what you're building. I found it fascinating as somebody that was, I am not an Asian American, but maybe I have an Asian American body. Um, <laughs> like I've just never had, I've never had a dress shirt that fit me. Um, yeah. I don't wear dress shirts anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm very happy about that. But uh, talk to me about how you came up with the new uh, sizing system. Yeah. Um, I, our brand is not like exclusively for Asian Americans. I no. think it's simply just like inspired uh, by you know, kind of my personal struggles and how I came up with it, honestly, was just, I was never really able to find a dress shirt. And so when we first started this company, I was just like, let me just start by making a dress shirt that fits me. And then right. and then we'll kind of just like figure it out from there. And so I literally just like measured myself and then like made a sample of a shirt that like fit me really well. And then I basically bought like tons of dress shirts from like all kinds of competitors Brands that were too big on me, brands that exclusively sell to, you know, smaller men or shorter men, brands that I already shop at that I know kind of fit me well. And I just like measured all of those shirts and I put all of those measurements like into an Excel and I kind of just like figured something out from there. And there's no like, I I literally have no like methodology, just no like algorithm behind like uh, sizing at all. It's literally just like, hey, you know, instead of like increasing the sleeves by like an inch for every size, let's just do like less than that. And that way, like people who find the sleeves too long, but every everywhere else on the body, if it's like, okay, we'll find our gesture like better. And, and it's like finding the medium between like all of these brands so that it's no longer just catering to like the average American male, um, which you know, in our community, like tends to be larger than larger than our like average, average person. Where can people find out more about what you guys are doing? I'll link up to the couple uh, guest blogs you guys wrote for my site, which I thought were a pretty fascinating perspective on your leaps. But um, where can people find out more uh, if they haven't found a dress shirt that fits them? Yeah, so uh, I think our two biggest assets, because we're an e-commerce brand, is just basically going to be our website yep. and also our Instagram. Uh, so the Instagram is for like just a closer look of like what we're doing day to day, and all of the mediums are just managed by like me and Tanya. So literally, like when someone emails us or like DMs us or like talks to us on the chat on the on the website, it's all me and Tanya. <laughs> so they can go on our website, which is just nimblemade.com. They can go to our Instagram, which is just nimble made. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also have a Facebook page, but that is like a little less yeah. interactive. I don't particularly like the layout of it. Um, but those those two are the, the two our biggest assets. And then if they want to get in touch, you know, they can email us, obviously, at uh, hello at nimble-made.com. 
um, which is also accessible through the website or Instagram. So uh, those two things are probably the easiest. Yeah, and our site also has a sizing calculator. So Mm -hmm. for someone like yourself who hasn't found a dresser that fits them perfectly, uh, you can go to uh, the Fit Guide on our website where Wesley worked with a uh, developer to kind of code in a calculator where you input your height, your weight, um, and then it outputs. Which is much better than the neck and the sleeve, which I don't know why that's used to determine your whole body for dress shirts. Um, But anyways... Yeah, and then what I think the other thing is we're also working on a lot of like content where we're trying to really highlight, you know, the stories of people in our community. So we're doing, you know, something that's very similar to like a Humans of New York and really just like telling the stories of Asian Americans and, you know, what fashion means to them or maybe not even fashion. And then we're doing a lot to like try to highlight a lot of the models that we use in our shoots and we created like individual pages for them on the yeah. big guy. Look and both. all of that is uh, is uh, hosted on our, on our website. Thank you for listening to the Reimagine Work Podcast. It's been such a fun journey to start this podcast, start getting random feedback from around the world, and to continue to meet and have conversations with such amazing people who really helped me learn and in some ways have started to become my friends. I think a podcast, I've started to push a lot of people to create podcasts can be this hack almost to uh, jump through the hoops of the awkwardness of networking that people don't like and actually get down to have a deeper conversation and I found it's been pretty cool to do that. Um, I want to keep this as basically a fun creative endeavor. I don't want to have ads. I think there are a lot of ads out there that you can basically just give a coupon code. You get pretty small dollars on the advertising. I've looked into it. Um, I think it's kind of annoying when you're listening to things, though. I think podcast advertising is probably the least bad of any uh, advertising I've seen. Anyway, if you feel compelled to support the podcast, I have a Patreon page. Right now, that is probably the main way to support. So I think for me, asking for contribution or support is really a selfish motive. I'd like to dedicate more of my time to creating, writing, helping people, having these conversations, and just spending a lot more time thinking deeply, reading books, uh, writing about these topics. And if you think that's something worth doing, uh, I'd love to see the show of support. If you have feedback on the podcast, guests you want me to talk to, want to make comments on my monotone voice, you can send them my way. I take any and all comments and just love the support. Uh, Thanks so much for the people listening and let's keep reimagining work. Hey all, thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can of course check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50,000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50,000, which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership. 
and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.